Good morning. I'm going to preach with a cough drop in my mouth. I may regret that later. So if you get smacked, I'm sorry. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this privilege to worship you. Bless us. Now, Father, we pray. Open our minds, Lord, to understand your word. Help us see it, love it, believe it, trust it, obey it with all that we are for our joy and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. This message is entitled... Jesus, scriptures fulfilled, promises kept. Jesus, scriptures fulfilled, promises kept. We'll return to this theme throughout the course of this book, um, no doubt. But that's important because we oftentimes have to hear something over and over before it really starts to sink in. And what we're going to see is that the entire Bible is centered Upon the man, Jesus Christ. And that's one of the main points of the message this morning. Is that we haven't really understood the entirety of the Bible until we see the whole Bible in light of Jesus Christ. Some people with an anemic understanding of the Bible will say something totally incorrect like, The God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. But... They only say that because they're not reading the Old Testament like the New Testament authors, Jesus, and the apostles read the Old Testament. Because just think about what Jesus himself said about the, the Old Testament. Matthew 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Luke twenty four twenty seven, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So that's Jesus on the road to Emmaus, those two disciples, and he appeared to them, and he explained to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What does that mean? It means Jesus said that the whole Old Testament, because that's what the scriptures that they had, the whole Old Testament was about him. John 5, 39, Jesus rebukes the religious leaders saying, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And so Jesus himself understood that the whole Old Testament was pointing to him, was testifying about him. And that even the religious leaders, the most well-trained theological minds in the Jewish religion, misread their Old Testament. Because they didn't see Jesus in it. So if we take away anything from this morning, what we need to see is that if we don't find Christ in our reading of the Old Testament, we're reading the Old Testament incorrectly. 
And hopefully this will help some of you as you read your Old Testament because many times you read it and you just think, well, this is kind of boring. What's this about? But if you start looking for Jesus in your Old Testament, let me tell you something. He's everywhere. It'll change the way you read your Bible. I believe that. To this very day, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that a veil lies over the eyes of the Jews to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. But I pray that if that veil is over somebody's eyes this morning, it will be lifted today. So let's follow Matthew and think critically with him about the Old Testament. Let's let Matthew show us how to see. That's what we want to do this morning. From Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. So if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. It says, Now when they had departed, that is the Magi, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, Go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene, the word of God. You may be seated. We're going to see three things concerning Christ this morning. Number one, Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the true Israel. Number two, Jesus is the true comfort. Jesus is the true comfort. And number three, Jesus is the true suffering servant. Jesus is the true suffering servant. First, we see that Jesus is the true Israel. So, We've just talked about how the Magi have come searching for the king of Israel, the king of the Jews. And they were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, and so they went by a different way. And then, of course, it wouldn't take long then for Herod to realize that he'd been tricked. And we talked last time about how really crazy Herod was and just vicious and cruel learned more about that recently um, at the Christian Life Center Christmas party. They had a guy come speaking on Israel and about Herod. Just an unbelievably cruel man. 
And so he kills all the children um, there in the Bethlehem and the surrounding um, region. But, but uh, Joseph receives a dream because of this is about to happen, saying that he is to flee Bethlehem to go to Egypt. And uh, we have to ask why, um, why Matthew wants to tell us this, this story, this part of Jesus' history. We, Luke, Luke doesn't record this story, so we have to ask Matthew, why, why do you want us to know about this? And Matthew tells us, he sees in this story about Jesus being led out of Bethlehem, fleeing Bethlehem to go to Egypt, a fulfillment of Scripture. And, um, and as we talked about before, part of Matthew's burden, as we said, is to, especially to those with a Jewish background, he wants to prove to them that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the promised Messiah that all the Old Testament pointed to, that Jesus is not an accident of history, but that Jesus is the center of human history. That Jesus is the center of the, enti- and, and of the entire redemptive uh, storyline of the Bible. That Jesus is the climactic point that you can't understand the Bible without understanding Jesus. And that even some of these obscure things in the Old Testament are ultimately fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. And so we have this story of Jesus being forced to flee from uh, Israel to Egypt. And at first blush, when we read this, uh, the way Matthew puts it, it seems to be that, that what is happening is that all, all this is is God's way, if you will, of bringing Jesus into Egypt so that he could bring him back out again, out of Egypt, and thus fulfill the prophecy in Hosea 11.1, 1, where it says, uh, out of Egypt, I called my son, and that's the, that's the verse that he quotes there that was fulfilled by the prophet in verse 15. Uh, it was Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt, I called my son. And so at first blush, that's all that seems to be happening. The problem is, as a lot of people point out, is that it's actually a lot more complicated than that. Because if you go back, and I encourage you to do so, and actually read Hosea and the, and the context of Hosea and what Hosea 11.1 1 is talking about, what you'll see is that it's, it's quite clear, actually, that Hosea 11.1 1 is not is not referring in any clear way to the Messiah or the Christ. It's referring to the nation of Israel. Particularly, it's, it's, it's referring to, uh, it's, not a, it's not a forward predicting prophecy exactly. Rather, what it is, is when, G, when God is saying, out of Egypt I called my son in the context of Hosea, he's referring to the Exodus He's referring to the nation of Israel, the whole nation as his son. So God refers to the whole nation of Israel as his son. And he's referring back to the time when he called them out of Egypt in the Exodus and delivered them through the the waters of the Red Sea to become his people, to become his uh, nation. But Matthew applies this passage to Jesus and to this event in Jesus's life. And so we're forced to ask ourselves this question. And so this is why I'm talking about we have to think critically about the Bible because there's lots of people who will raise objections to the Bible based on passages like this and say things like, well, see, Matthew was just making up stuff. Matthew wasn't reading his Old Testament. See, Matthew took that verse totally out of context. And he was just totally just using it for his purposes. 
Because, to see, that verse wasn't, had nothing to do about Jesus. So we have to think critically about what's going on here. Was Matthew a bad exegete? Was he a bad interpreter? Was he interpreting the Bible all willy-nilly? It's a technical term, by the way. <laughs> Just trying to artificially fit Jesus everywhere in the Old Testament? Or did Matthew really know what he was doing and perhaps understood the Old Testament better than any of us? And I want to suggest to you that's what was taking place. The best way, I think, to understand how Matthew is thinking of Jesus here as a fulfillment of Hosea 11.1 is that Matthew sees Jesus as a typological recapitulation of Israel. Pastor, why you got to make up words? I'm preaching on Sunday. Why you got to make up words? Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your mind. What make you think this morning? All that means is that Jesus' life was a type. That is, it's an image, a picture, a pointer to a deeper reality. That's all that a type is, an image, a picture, a pointer to a deeper reality. And recapitulation just means a redo, a do-over, a, 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 you know, kind of a living it vicariously himself, a redo of the, nation, of the life of the nation of Israel. That, that's really all it means, typological recapitulation. That is, Jesus' life in a sense, is like a redo, like a do-over of Israel's history in miniature, in himself. Jesus' life is a type, it's an image, it's a, or to use Matthew's words, it's a fulfillment. Jesus' life is a fulfillment of the, nation, of the life of the nation of Israel. And just as God in the Old Testament in multiple places called the whole nation of Israel his son, in the book of Matthew, God calls Jesus his son. So what's he saying here? He's saying that Jesus in himself is everything that Israel was supposed to be, but wasn't. Israel... God called Israel to be his son, but Israel turned out to be a faithless son. So God provided for himself and for his, the world a faithful son. To fulfill what Israel was supposed to do, but failed to do. And that's the key. That Jesus' life is a typological recapitulation. With one huge key difference, and that is where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. And understood in this light, then... Understood in this light, it makes a lot of sense about what Matthew is going to tell us in the book of Matthew. So, for example, as we just said, that Jesus is called God's son, just like Israel was. And, of course, it makes sense then that Jesus would go into Egypt and come back out again because God wants to show us. I mean, the fact that Jesus' life story would bring him into Egypt and out again is... is, is, it's too obvious to be a coincidence. It's God doing something, saying, look, here's my true son. The true Israel. Who's going to succeed where Israel failed. How about this? Jesus is also called God's son, uh, particularly at his baptism. His baptism, which marks the beginning of his ministry, and the voice came down from heaven, this is my beloved son. Well, in the nation, in the God, uh, the nation of Israel also became identified exclusively as God's son. How? Through the Exodus, 
Through what? Through the waters of the Red Sea. So in the same way, through Jesus' entering and exiting the water, God is declaring him as his son and bringing in a new covenant with him. How about when Jesus, after his baptism, just like after, uh, uh, after Israel went through the waters of the Exodus in the Red Sea, what happened? Forty years of wandering in the wilderness. What happened after Jesus' baptism? Forty days in the wilderness. What is God's? That's not an accident. God's trying to say something. This is my son, my true son. And guess what? In the in the wilderness, all Israel did was complain, complain, complain. Jesus didn't eat or drink for 40 days. He's the son of God. Satan himself comes and tells him to command a stone to become bread. And Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone. What did Israel grumble and grumble about in the wilderness? Food. Jesus said, I live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. What about this? When Israel was supposed to enter the land, they were supposed to purify the land. They were supposed to destroy the Canaanites. Because if you go back in the book of uh, Genesis, uh, where God first promises to Abraham that his people will inherit the land, he said that it must happen 400 years from now because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That means that Israel entering the promised land and, and destroying the peoples was uh, the fulfillment of God's judgment upon the wickedness of the Canaanite religion. And they had wicked practices. And, God, and they were supposed to cleanse the land of its iniquity so that, so that what? So that it would be a holy land unto God and his people. But what did Israel do when they entered the land? They didn't cleanse the land. They joined in the wickedness. Of the people of the land. But what did Jesus do when he began his ministry? He cast out demons. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He confronted and he forgave sin. He truly conquered the land as it was supposed to be conquered. Removing sin and its effects from the land of Israel. And so all this is to say is that Jesus is the true Israel. He succeeded where Israel failed. He achieved and secured the blessings that God promised to give Israel if they kept the covenant. But they didn't. Remember? They broke the covenant. So what did God do? God sent someone who would keep it. The perfect Jew, but much more than the perfect Jew, the perfect person. The perfect human being. To do what? To be faithful to God. We're not just Israel, but where we had been unfaithful. So that he could do what? So that he could offer his life, his perfect life, for yours and for mine and for everyone who would turn from their sins and believe in him. You see, we all broke the covenant. We've all broken God's command. None of us has been faithful to him as God's infinite glory deserves. So God has sent his son to be the true Israel, the true son of God. So that he 
could offer his life for ours so that through Jesus, God could then grant us the blessings of the covenant, not because we earned them because we didn't, but so that God, through Jesus, could offer us the blessings of the covenant as a gift that can only be received by faith in him. Jesus is the son of God so that in him, we might become sons of God. Unworthy though we are by grace. So is Matthew crazy when he quotes Hosea 11.1? 1? I don't think so. I just think he understood the Old Testament the way it was meant to be understood. As all about Jesus. From beginning to end. So number one, Jesus is the true Israel. Number two, Jesus is the true comfort. Jesus is the true comfort. Herod soon realizes that he's been tricked. And... Uh, He didn't like being tricked. So he orders every male child two years and under to be killed. Some liberal scholars have claimed that this event didn't happen because there's no extra biblical uh, attestation or evidence that it happened. But that's hardly surprising because, as we talked about before, uh, a few dozen children being killed in a small village was nothing compared to what was happening in these days. It was hardly newsworthy. So we're not surprised that, you know, no one else mentions it. It was just part of the regular cruelties of Herod and the Romans at that time. But see, Matthew sees this as very significant because in this tragedy, he sees another fulfillment of Scripture. And here he quotes Jeremiah thirty-one fifteen which says, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So Matthew sees in the massacre of the innocents, as it's called, a fulfillment of Jeremiah 31.15. So we got to go back and do our homework again and ask what's going on here. And what you'll find is, again, it's a little more complicated than it seems at first blush because if you go back and read Jeremiah 31:15 it's not clear at all that it's talking about some event that would happen during the life of the Messiah. Jeremiah was a prophet during the Babylonian exile or during, leading the time leading up to the Babylonian exile where Babylon came and destroyed the Jerusalem, destroyed the temple and kicked Israel out of the land of promise because they broke the covenant. Right? So, Jeremiah was a prophet during these times. And so, Jeremiah 31.15 most likely refers to what? Refers to Jewish mothers weeping as their children are killed and led off into exile by the Babylonians. That's, That's the most immediate context there of Jeremiah 31. That Rachel... It's, uh, Rachel, remember, was Jacob's, you know, the forefather of Israel. Jacob had the 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob's most loved wife was Rachel. And so Rachel is depicted, Rachel is depicted here in Jeremiah as weeping over her ancestors, if you will, for what is befalling them. 
And so that's the most immediate context of Jeremiah 31. But we have to ask ourselves, in what sense then can it said to be fulfilled during the lifetime of Jesus some 600 years later? And so I think we have to do what we just did before and revisit our understanding of, of Christ and how he relates to Israel's history. If you go back and look at Jeremiah 31, and I encourage you to do that, in Jeremiah 31, 15, what you'll find, this is fascinating, verse 15 is the lone sad verse in a whole passage of hope. It's interesting. He picks out, Matthew picks out the one sad verse in an entire passage that's really about hope, the promised hope of Israel, that God was going to restore Israel after their exile. Okay? And so, in fact, the very next verse after the one Matthew quoted in Jeremiah 31, 16, this is what it says. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. And most significantly, and this is important here. Jeremiah chapter 31 is an incredibly important chapter in the whole Bible because it's one of the clearest chapters in the Bible that talks about the new covenant. At the end of that chapter in Jeremiah 31, this is what it says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, the covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after, after those days, declares the Lord. Now that's a prophecy. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. So, Jeremiah 31 is not a passage of sorrow. It's a passage of hope. Of what? Of restoration from the exile. From their breaking of the covenant, even though they broke the covenant, God was going to restore them. How? By making a new covenant. A new way of relating to God. Not through the law, but by grace through faith. Where the law is not something outside of you that condemns you but gives you no power to keep it, but whether where the law is something inside of you that God himself writes on your heart and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are now supernaturally empowered to keep it and love it and serve God from the heart. Something that the Jews couldn't do. So how do we put this together? I believe Matthew is saying something like this, that the massacre of the innocents in Jesus' day is a picture it's a picture of the last tears that Israel would shed before her Messiah comes. It's the last tears that Israel would shed before her true deliverance from the exile would come. You know, 
Israel is back in the land of Israel at this time, but they're not free. They're, they're subjugated by the Romans. They, they still understood that even though they were in the land of Israel, it was not, they, were, they were still exiles. Their true deliverance from exile had not yet come, and it wouldn't come until the Messiah came. And the massacre of the innocents is those last tears shed before Jesus comes, before he came, to truly restore Israel from exile. How? By a new covenant. That's why Jesus said on the night before he died, he said this, Luke twenty two twenty. He said, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus was establishing a new way to have relationship with God through faith in him, through, through the filling and regeneration of the Holy Spirit so that we don't have stiff necks like the Israelites, but that we know God from the heart. And that's the true comfort, that it's time to weep no more because our exile is over. We're not... We're not estranged from God anymore. If you know Jesus. If you know Jesus. So Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the true comfort. And finally, Jesus is the true suffering servant. Jesus is the true suffering servant. In this last passage here, it says that uh, in a dream, they had him go up to Nazareth um, because the he would be called a Nazarene. And if you can believe it, this passage is actually more problematic than the first two. And here's why. (laughs) Because there's actually no prophecy in the entire Bible that says that the Messiah would be a Nazarene. So what's going on here? Well, I I think it's actually this. Matthew knows... Matthew knows that he's not quoting a specific prophecy. And here's how we know that. Because this is the only place in the book of Matthew where where he says, rather than saying what was fulfilled by the prophet came to pass, here is the only place where Matthew uses the plural, what was said by the prophets. Plural. So Matthew understands that he himself is not quoting an a specific, he doesn't have a specific prophecy in mind. Rather, he has a general theme of the prophets in mind, and he's summarizing that theme by saying that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. So the question then is, what theme is he referring to in the prophets? Well, I think there's two, two possibilities. Number one is that it could be referring to prophecies that refer to Jesus as a, as a shoot or branch. For example, in Isaiah 11.1, 1, it's clearly talking about the Messiah. It says, there shall come forth from the shoot, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. That's a, that's a messianic prophecy. Uh, David, uh, David was a, 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 Jesse was David's father. And so this is a prophecy that, <laughs> that David's line will be cut off, which it was, right? David's line will be cut off, so there's a stump left, but a shoot will come out of the stump, 
after David's line is cut off, a shoot will arise out of the stump who will be the heir to the throne of David. The word shoot there, trans, uh, translated shoot, is the Hebrew word natser. If I could roll my R's, I, it, would sound more he, it would sound more Hebrew, but natser. But the word natser means shoot, and it has the same root letters has the same root letters in Hebrew as the, the name Nazareth. Um, so that's one possibility. Another possibility is that um, another possibility is that Matthew could be saying that Jesus is fulfilling the general expectation that the Messiah would be despised. For example, it is from what we can see in the Bible, being a Nazarene wasn't a compliment. In John 1, for example, it says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. There's another verse for you. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Come and see. And so it could be just the general understanding that the Old Testament taught that the Messiah, by, call, by Jesus being a Nazarene, is fulfilling, if you will, that general Old Testament expectation that the Messiah would be despised. And indeed he was. And the clearest passage of that is Isaiah 53, which reads, For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So what we see that Jesus is the true Israel. He's the true comfort. And he's the true suffering servant. He's the true Israel. Because he offered to God what we couldn't and wouldn't give God, but what God completely deserves, perfect love, obedience, faith, service, worship, adoration. Jesus is the true comfort. So we can weep no more because our exile from God is over. And our exile from our heavenly home is only going to last a little longer. Jesus is the true suffering servant because he suffered in the place of his people. He was despised and rejected by men so we wouldn't be despised and rejected by God. He was crushed for our iniquities. For all who turn from their sin and believe in him. The whole Bible is about Jesus Christ. It's the story of redemption. And it's your story. Whether you realize it or not, it's your story.
And so when I plead this morning to say, come to Jesus, turn from your sins, believe in Christ, believe in him who died on the cross, who rose from the dead, who's coming back one day, surrender all that you are to him, serve him, love him, trust him, obey him. When I plead with you to do that, what I'm saying is I'm pleading for you to live the story for which you were made. And to live in any other story is to waste your life. Because this is the only true story that there is. The whole Bible is about Jesus. The whole world is about Jesus. Your life is about Jesus. And today, you can find the purpose for which you were made. If you will turn from your sins and trust in him who died for us.